Today, we're talking about accommodating, especially accommodating anxious behaviors in our kids. Sometimes accommodating is also known as enabling. So this happens when an anxious person asks another person to do something to reduce their anxiety. When your kid is nervous about going to bed and you lay with them until they fall asleep. When they're nervous about going to a birthday party and you cancel at the last minute. Driving them to school because they're afraid to try to take the bus. We all do it. We all accommodate anxious behaviors in our kids. And it's never so simple and straightforward. That's what we're talking more about today. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're talking about accommodating anxious behaviors in our kids. We all do it. If you do any of those things that I talked about in the intro, you're not alone. In fact, my husband accommodates my anxious behaviors all the time. I accommodate my kids' anxious behaviors. And the tricky part about accommodating kids' behaviors in particular is that sometimes they naturally outgrow these anxieties. For example, separation anxiety. Kids tend to get separation anxiety late in infancy and then again in toddlerhood, and they rather naturally grow out of it most of the time. So it's easy to accommodate. You just carry them around, let them stay with you all the time. And then eventually they'll separate and they'll find their way. But sometimes we rescue these anxiety-prone kids. We rescue them from normal, developmentally appropriate experiences. And I think as parents, it's important for us to look within and to notice when we're accommodating. So we can determine if it is in the best interest of our kids and in our own best interests. Because sometimes we accommodate our own anxiety by rescuing our kids, like driving your kids to school rather than having them take the bus because you're worried there's older kids on the bus that might say bad words or might teach them bad things. Or you heard that another kid had a bad experience on the bus and you're worried that might happen to your kid. So perhaps you accommodate your own anxiety by not opening up your kid to that experience. And like I said, accommodation is something we all do. And usually when we do it, we do it in hopes that our kids are just going to mature out of these things. We're going to hope that they go away on their own. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. When we accommodate, the anxious child or adult usually feels relief right away. And if you're the type that gets anxious when your kids get anxious, that's me. I'm waving my hand over here. Then it probably feels like a relief to all of you. But when you accommodate the behavior, it usually comes back over and over again. Some of these behaviors kids mature out of, some of them they don't. Now, we're not going to be talking about anxiety disorders today. Examples of anxiety disorders are things like obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. While I do think it is valuable and important to consider each of these, I also don't feel like a podcast is the right place to be talking about treating anxiety disorders. 
For that, it's really important to find a professional that is skilled and knowledgeable and can help support you directly. So a lot of people ask, how do we know if these are basic everyday worries in our kids or in us, or if it's something more, something where we do need a helping hand? A general rule of thumb is look at how much it's impacting your life. If anxiety is making it hard for you to leave the house to get your job done, whether your parenting job or your out of the house job, if it's preventing you from talking to the neighbors or interfering with daily life, if it's preventing your kids from going to school or having a huge impact on their day at school or in their friendships or lack thereof, then it's probably time to get a helping hand. With the past couple years and the pandemic, anxiety has risen exponentially. So if you're more anxious than you were two years ago, if your kids are more anxious than they were two years ago, you are not alone. Talk to your pediatrician, talk to a mental health professional, the school counselor or school psychologist. Do some reading on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a highly effective treatment for anxiety and depression for both kids and adults. There are lots of other treatment modalities out there, so I don't want to undermine any of them. But a lot of people say, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. So if you need a starting point, talk to a professional, learn a little bit more about cognitive behavioral therapy, see if it might be a good fit for you or your kids. Now, when it comes to anxious tendencies and behaviors in our kids, there are things that we naturally do that we probably don't even notice we're doing really wonderful, supportive, adaptive things like encouraging our kids, giving them pep talks, cracking jokes, taking deep breaths together, making plans to tackle fears. If you're doing any of those things, which you probably are in some way, shape or form, then notice that you're not just accommodating anxiety all the time. You're also doing some really great things to support it. I'm going to give you a couple examples of how I accommodate anxiety and how my husband accommodates my anxiety and I accommodate my kids' anxiety so that maybe you can see yourself in it a little bit. And I'll also give you three tips to help your kid work through some simple things that they might be nervous about. Before we get into today's episode, here's a word from our sponsor, PrepDish. PrepDish has been a part of our weekly routine now for several years. It's a meal planning service. That means each week in your inbox, you get a PDF document. In that document, there are three parts. One is the list of ingredients that you need to make all the meals for the week. Two is the specific instructions to prep the meals for the week. And three is the list of the final things you have to do on the dish day to get the meal on the table. I used to feel really burdened by meal planning and cooking, but now that we can prep in advance, my partner and I really team up to do this together. That way, when it comes time to actually serve the food, the workload during the dinnertime hustle on the weeknights is so much lighter. If you want to check it out, go to preptish.com forward slash families and you'll get two weeks free. Again, that's preptish.com forward slash families and you can try it for two weeks free. All right, today we're talking a little bit about anxiety and I want to emphasize that little bit part because this is not meant to be a comprehensive resource on treating anxiety. I reached out to listeners asking for questions for this week's podcast, and so many of the questions pertain to different types of anxious behaviors that they were observing in their kids. So instead of taking one specific question, I'm going to talk more generally about the impact that anxiety has on my life and on the life of my kids. 
And I'm also going to give three tools that I use to handle it day in and day out. This is not meant to be medical advice. And again, not meant to be comprehensive. If you've been listening to the podcast for some time, you'll know that I often like to understand things like this through the lens of an adult because I'm an adult. And if I can understand it through my own lens first, I can better understand what my kids are going through. Anxiety can come in waves. It can also come in different levels of intensity. Sometimes anxiety can be debilitating for us and for our kids. But at the same time, a low level of anxiety can also be part of who we are. We're never going to try to eliminate anxiety 100%. And in fact, there are many types of anxiety that help to keep us safe and help to keep our kids safe. So it's important when you're experiencing periods of anxiety that you assess how is it impacting your life. The anxiety that we experience in our house is mostly manageable within the home. Now, if we reach periods of time where that anxiety increases and it's preventing us from living the life that we want to live, then we will absolutely reach out for a helping hand, whether for the grownups or for the kids. And it's always an ongoing assessment as things change. Maybe you were a little anxious in 2019 and then in 2020, you were really anxious and that was the time for you to seek out your helping hand. Maybe the prolonged pandemic has led you to a point where you have realized that now it's time for you to reach out for your helping hand. As we change, as our life experiences change. So again, this is not meant to be prescriptive. I'm more speaking from my own experience here. I want to lead by telling you that anxiety in children can manifest itself as behavior challenges. Some kids who are incredibly challenging have a lot of anxiety. So if you have a kid that's really challenging you, ask yourself if anxiety is playing a role. Ask your pediatrician if anxiety might be playing a role. Ask a mental health professional if anxiety might be playing a role. Because anxiety can manifest itself as behavior challenges. When it comes to anxiety in kids, there are certain things that kids grow out of. We call that maturation. They just mature out of it. And there are certain things that they don't grow out of. I've talked a little bit about the zones of regulation. The zones of regulation is a system designed by Leah Kuypers. I need to get her on the podcast. I think she'd be a great guest. Basically, the way that she has visualized the different zones or the way we regulate ourselves is a stoplight. So green is calm and relaxed and focused. Yellow is where you're starting to feel a little heightened, a little worried, a little anxious. And red is where you're mad, angry, out of control, whether it be your body or your anxiety or your anger. And then there's also blue, which is sad, lonely. Now you'd think that green would be the ideal, you know, that we're all working to be green all the time. But that's just not the reality. Some zones are more comfortable than others, but there are no bad zones. In our house, we have two people that kind of have resting points of the yellow zone and two people that have resting points of the blue zone. We all experience green and red and all the zones at different times. But I would say on any given day, two of us tend to be more yellow and two of us tend to be more blue. And that's okay. Part of who we are. Now, I'm one of those yellow people and because I'm yellow... I'm already a little heightened. It's easier for me to get to red than it is for some other people. So while I typically have high-functioning anxiety, pretty mild, there are absolutely situations that push me into the red zone where I feel out of control, where my anxiety feels overwhelming. 
To help illustrate some of the things that I'm talking about today, I'm going to share more about one of the most anxiety-provoking things for me. I am an incredibly anxious driver. I actually just saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, my driving makes me nervous too. And I absolutely need that for my car. So when it comes to something like this, you know, you think nature versus nurture. Was I born like this? Was I born in the yellow zone? Is that my wiring? Is that my body type? Or did something happen to me along the way? Was it part of the way that I was raised? The way that I'm living my life? It's probably both. I've always been a pretty poor driver. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that I have pretty bad visual spatial skills. I have a hard time seeing the distance between one thing to the next, which makes driving extra anxiety provoking for me. It also makes things like skiing extra anxiety provoking for me. I have a hard time gauging distance. That's part of my brain wiring. And I'm also hypermobile. That means I'm extra flexible. I have loose joints. And actually my yellow kid also is hypermobile. And the thing about being hypermobile when you have looser joints, it means that every step you take in the world, you feel less secure than the next person. So your experience existing on this earth in general feels a little less safe, just a tiny bit, but just a little less safe. So when you think about anxiety, you know, you don't have to go into these great details like I did to analyze where my anxiety came from. Just realize that there's probably things in your brain and things in your body that make you more inclined to be anxious than the next person. You are not broken. Your children are not broken, but they may have a natural tendency towards anxiety based on the wiring of their brain and their body. Now, sometimes anxiety arises out of something happening to you. So I was always a pretty bad driver, pretty anxious. And then when my first child was six weeks old, I got into an accident on the highway. It was a pretty scary accident. Somebody pulled out in front of somebody else. And then I ended up rear-ending that somebody in front of me. It all happened really fast. And ever since that point, I've been really, really anxious about driving on the highway. In fact, I avoided driving on the highway for a long time after that. And then I came to this sort of middle point where I realized I'm going to have to drive on the highway. So I only drive on highways that are pretty easy to navigate that tend to not have a lot of traffic. And that's where I sit now. This was eight years ago. And I still only drive on really sort of quote unquote easy to drive on highways. So my husband accommodates my driving anxiety. And by that, I mean he drives for me, when he can, that is. So New York City, as many major metropolitan areas, have a suburban system that looks a little bit like a bullseye. So the city is at the center of the bullseye. It's the most dense, the busiest. When you move out to the first layer, that first layer is still pretty busy and dense, not quite so much as the city. But you're still going to have a lot of traffic, a lot of stressed out people driving back and forth to work. So we live in one of the outer rings of the bullseye in the suburban area. So the highways near our house tend to be pretty quiet. Our county goes all the way down to the city. It touches the city. So the northern half of our county, I feel pretty good driving in. I feel pretty confident. But the southern half of the county that is denser and more populated and busier, more traffic, 
I absolutely avoid driving in, at least on the highways. So when at all possible, I have my husband drive me if I have to go to the southern part of the county or into the city, or I take the train. This past week, my daughter had a play date in the southern part of the county, and my husband was not available to take her, so I had to do it. So what did I do? I got out Google Maps, and I turned on Avoid Highways, and I took the very long route to get there. And we got there. We were fine. We did it. We didn't miss the play date. I found a workaround. I found a way to accommodate my anxiety about driving. When we accommodate our anxiety constantly, our anxiety stays strong. It does not go away. To decrease anxieties like this, the only way to really deal with it and to decrease it is to go through it. You can't go around it. I continue to go around my driving anxiety. I've been doing this for years. And mostly I get by, like we don't really miss out on anything. My kids don't miss out on anything. I don't miss out on anything. I find a way. And for that reason, I haven't had to deal with it. And I don't plan on dealing with it. Actually, the thought of dealing with my driving anxiety sends me through the roof. I have no interest in driving to New York City. No interest in dealing with my driving anxiety. And with our kids, we'll often find that they feel the same way about their anxieties. They are totally fine not dealing with them. They are totally fine avoiding them. And many times we can just avoid them and we can let them avoid those anxieties. And it's not life altering. As parents, we spend a lot of time accommodating anxiety. If you have a kid that has anxiety about going to school every day, you might decide to homeschool them. Although situations like this are often much more complex, it is, in a way, accommodating their anxiety. Not to say that it's wrong, because I accommodate my kids' anxiety all the time in different ways. But I think it's important to notice when we're doing it. Because accommodating anxiety doesn't make anxiety go away. It just makes facing the anxiety less common. Here's an example of this. So my eight-year-old's biggest fear, his biggest anxiety, is over characters in costumes. So going to Disney World and giving Mickey Mouse a hug would basically be like me driving to New York City. It'd put him over the edge. And this has been his whole life. I remember when he was a very young toddler, seeing a giant Mr. Potato Head walking around and him being terrified. I would have thought it would have faded by now, but it has not. I was kind of just waiting for maturation. I was waiting for him to grow out of this. I'm still hopeful that he's just going to grow out of it. So we've mostly been avoiding it. We've mostly been accommodating it. And what the anxiety is can play a big role in whether or not we need to deal with it. If I was so anxious that I couldn't even drive to the grocery store and we couldn't get food in our house, then yes, I would need to deal with that anxiety. But the truth of the matter is, I have Google Maps that helps me avoid highways. I have a husband that accommodates me when I feel too afraid to drive. I also have a train that can get me into the city if I need to go. So I have a lot of options. I have a lot of workarounds, but that's not always true. Back to the fear of the characters and costumes. I had this fear as a kid for many, many years. I could not go into Chuck E. Cheese. And if I went into Chuck E. Cheese, the characters, the mechanical characters on stage, those things absolutely terrorized me. So I have a lot of empathy for my son. I could feel his anxiety because I had the same. And it's important to note that as a parent, if your child has anxieties that are similar to yours, you may be more likely to accommodate them 
or say, oh, I get it. Let's just avoid it. And if you're lucky enough to be like me, who has a kid with an anxiety that's easy to avoid, then it's not that big of a deal. So when has this anxiety over the characters and costumes become a problem? Now, if you ever go into Times Square in the middle of New York City, close to where all the Broadway theaters are, there's a lot of people dressed up in different sorts of costumes. We cannot go to Times Square. He is absolutely petrified of going to Times Square. So it makes doing things like going to see shows really anxiety-provoking and really difficult for him. Now, being that the past two years, everything's been closed down in the pandemic, we haven't had to deal with it. So we haven't had a reason to go to Times Square. So we haven't dealt with it. And I'm still just kind of waiting for him to mature out of it. But he's also terrified of the mascots at school. The mascot at school only comes out on special occasions, like the first day, the last day. I did feel like it was important to try to be proactive about this. So I used my first tool, which I'm going to give you, which is I tried to create a schema or a set of ideas to better understand what a mascot or a character in costume is. What we actually did was we scheduled a time to go in and he met the mascot costume with no person inside. He even put the mascot head on, looked at the whole thing top to bottom. I put it on so he could see it. He could understand what it was. And that didn't help. Not at all. Did not help in the least. I tried. I do want to say that often this strategy does work. It does help. But in this situation, it didn't. Not all of our efforts are successful, and that's okay. What I was doing there was trying to create a schema for costumes, right? All characters that are life-size tend to be this animal-like hat and also a body piece. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can try it on, you can take it off. This is what a character in costume is. So whether it's a lion or a tiger or a giant mouse, I was creating a schema for what characters and costumes really were. And again, this totally flopped, but this can work. This absolutely can work for some instances. Interestingly enough, he's not at all afraid of Halloween. And I really believe that's because he has a strong schema for Halloween. He knows that one day of the year, All the kids get dressed up and they wander around the neighborhood and they get candy. He's seen it in movies. He's experienced it in real life every year. So he has a schema for Halloween. He knows what that looks like. He can wrap his head around it. He knows pretty much what to expect. However, this week they had a 100th day of school celebration. And for those of you not in the U.S., this seems to be an increasing trend in recent years where all the kids dress up like 100-year-olds. So like elderly people, he's never experienced this before. He's never seen 100th day of school costumes. So that brings me to strategy number two, which is show them what done looks like. Show him an example of what a class full of second graders dressed up like 100 year olds looks like. So I went on to Google images and typed in kids dressed up for 100th day. And we pulled up an image of kids who were similar in age to him dressed up, and we looked at all of the common elements. A lot of the kids have glasses. A lot of the kids have rollers in their hair. Some are wearing wigs. This is probably what you can expect when you go to school and everyone is dressed up in 100th day of school costumes. 
It's not going to be people dressed up in giant character costumes. This is different. This is what done looks like. This is what the day is going to look like. So we can, number one, help to build a schema, give them a better understanding or a set of ideas or a context to which they can understand what it is they're anxious about. Number two, help them visualize what done looks like, what the end product, what this is working towards, what they can expect. Because the unknown can be scary. It's always really important to ask what it is that makes them nervous about these things. What is it about the characters in costume that makes you so nervous? And I'm pretty sure that's why my approach in this instance fell flat is because I didn't dig deep enough and I didn't really understand what the anxiety was about. Now reflecting, I suspect it's not that the costume itself makes him nervous. It's not knowing what's under the costume that makes him nervous. He understands what's on the outside, but not knowing who's under there is scary for him. So he was able to handle the Halloween costumes, maybe because he knows that most of those are kids. They're small people and they're less threatening. He was able to handle the 100th day of school costumes because he could see that those were also mostly kids and their faces were visible. They didn't have a masked face. He could see their eyes and their noses and the outlines of their faces. I suppose I could take him to Times Square and pay five bucks to each character and ask them to take their hats off so he can see their face underneath, but I'm not sure I even want to know. (laughs) So overall, we've been coping with this. Sometimes it does disrupt our lives, but it's not to any extreme amount that we have felt like we really need a plan or we need to seek out professional help to deal with this. Now, if we were dead set on doing a week-long Disney vacation, then we might have to do some therapy before that because there are a lot of characters in costume at Disney and they pop up around every corner, right? But we're not planning on that. So at this point, it is what it is. But I do often notice that his behavior gets really difficult when his anxiety is provoked. So if we ever do encounter a character in costume, he gets really resistant and really challenging. So back to my driving fear. I've mostly been able to work around it. And I'm highly unmotivated to deal with it. And you may have a kid that's highly unmotivated to deal with their anxiety too. And maybe that's okay. But if it's not okay then you need a helping hand. It's probably more than you can handle. And that's okay. Remember, I'm presenting these oversimplified examples so that you can better understand some of the constructs, not so you can develop an elaborate plan to do it all yourself. So if you said, Danae, I'll give you $1,000 to drive to New York City, I would say, no, not doing it, not worth it. If you said, Danae, I'll give you $10,000 to drive to New York City, I'd say, okay, okay, I think, I think I'll take that deal. But I am not going to be like, okay, we ride at dawn. I'm not ready. If there was a really big reward to motivate me to work on my anxiety, sure, I could do it. I absolutely could do it. Here's what it would look like. I'd create a schema. I'd have my husband drive me and I'd watch really closely, maybe even taking some notes. I would pick one route. Now, if you use ways to drive into the city, it could take you 10 or 12 different ways, but I would pick one route because this deal, this $10,000 deal did not say that I had to take the fastest route. They just said I had to take a route to get in. So I would pick a route that looked 
relatively easy. Of course, it's going to involve highways. And then I would need to know what does done look like? So creating a schema is my first tip that can be really helpful. Create a set of ideas that you can relate to, that you can find common to better understand whatever it is that is evoking the anxiety. So now that I have the schema, I kind of have this mental image for what the drive looks like. So creating a schema, whatever that is, that helps you to better understand the things that are underlying your anxiety, better understand whether or not there really is a safety risk or not, that can be really helpful. That's my tip number one. As I'm riding along in the car, I might look out the window and think to myself, oh, I drove on a similar highway like this when I lived in Washington, D.C., and I did just fine at it. I may relate it to past experiences, past experiences where I was successful. Number two, what does done look like? So once you've executed this, what is it going to look like? Give me the high level view. So for this drive into New York City, I need to see the route in advance. I need to pull it up on my phone, mentally trace it, so I know what to expect. Just hopping in my car and putting it in my GPS and just taking the turn by turn isn't really going to be right for me. I need to know what the whole route is going to look like. I need to know what to expect. I need to see the high level overview of it, what done looks like. And in many ways, this is why skiing is so difficult for me is because you can look at the route of skiing on a map, but you don't actually have an idea of what the elevations are like, where there's going to be a big drop off or a difficult section or ice. You can't see any of that on a map. You can't predict any of that. So just looking at a map for skiing is different than looking at a road map because you can't really see all the details on a map of a ski mountain, which is usually why they use the green, easy, blue, medium, and the black hard. So you can gauge the level of difficulty. So here's a couple other examples of showing a kid what done looks like. I had my kids do survival swim lessons. I know not everybody thinks that these are a great idea. They involve throwing the kid in the water and then flipping over, learning how to float, and then learning how to swim. It's kind of this set process. We had a couple really scary incidents with water, and we had a pool at our house, and it was the right fit for us. So one thing that I did in advance was that I showed my kid what done looks like. Went onto YouTube, I pulled up a video of what these swimming lessons entail. So the kid in the video, the kid gets tossed in. They learn how to flip over and float on their back. That's step one. And then after that, they get tossed in. They learn how to flip over onto their back, then back onto their stomach, take a few strokes, flip back onto their back, float for a minute, flip back onto their stomach, take a few strokes. So they saw what the done process looked like. I imagine it would be a lot scarier if someone just threw you into a pool and you had no idea what was to come. So even though they were young, they could visualize what the goal was here, what they were going to be doing, what done looks like. Similarly, my yellow kid gets pretty anxious when we go on vacation because he doesn't know what to expect. So what I do is I show him pictures of the hotel that we're staying at or the Airbnb, the accommodations, show him the bed that he's going to be staying in, show him a picture of the airplane. And then I do like a very rough 
bullet journal of what we're going to be doing each day. On Monday, we're going to go for a hike. On Tuesday, we're going to go kayaking. So he has this outline, this visualization of what done looks like for this vacation. Now, of course, there's going to be surprises. There's going to be unexpected things, and that's okay. That encourages flexibility, and our kids need to experience those surprises and changes. But having an idea of what done looks like when it comes to a vacation can be really empowering, especially for a kid that tends to be a little more anxious or a little more yellow. I know that I would feel super anxious if someone planned a vacation for me and I had no idea what to expect. When we go on vacation as a family, we often plan it together. And I I know what's coming. I know what we're doing. I know where we're staying. I know what time we're leaving. I have all the important information in my brain. And that helps to bring me some calm. So how can we hand some of that off to our kids so they know what to expect? If they're a kid that likes to know what to expect. Not all kids do. Yes, visualizing what done looks like for my drive, seeing what the route is going to look like would be very helpful. But still, I am not going to be ready to ride at dawn. I'm not driving straight to the city tomorrow for $10,000. What I'm doing instead is I'm going to create a stepladder. A stepladder is basically like baby steps. So the first day, I'm going to drive to White Plains, which is halfway between my house and the city. The next day, I'm going to get on the Hutch, which is this highway that I'm afraid of. And I'm going to drive to Scarsdale, which is one of the next towns. And then the next day, I'm going to drive right across the city line, right into the Bronx, where it's not so crowded yet. And then finally, maybe on the fourth or the fifth day, I'm going to drive into Manhattan. It wouldn't be safe for me or anyone else on the road if I just tried to do it all tomorrow. It would be way too overwhelming, way too anxiety provoking for me. So instead, I'm going to break it down into little mini steps working towards a goal. Now, the key to making this work would be that I'd have to keep at it, right? If I just drove to the city one time and never did it again, that fear and anxiety would would come right back. That fear and anxiety probably would never completely subside. It would be back very quickly. I would need to be driving to the city a lot with some frequency in order to keep that anxiety at bay, in order to feel confident in my abilities. Now, creating a stepladder with your kid, if they're trying to step-by-step, little-by-little face anxiety, that can be something that is hard as a parent for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's really hard to get the motivation or the buy-in from your kid. Unless you're going to be passing them $10,000, they might not be willing to engage in whatever it is that needs to be done to fix their anxiety. So if you're getting to the point where you need a stepladder, you might need a helping hand. You might need a professional to help you implement this. And often when professionals help implement it, there are rewards at each step to help motivate kids to keep moving forward, to keep facing their fears. So let's say that I really want to take my kid to a Broadway show and we really need to go to Times Square. If I'm being a really conscientious, gentle parent, I'm going to create a stepladder to do this and it's going to be really labor intensive. So first, I'm going to show him pictures of Times Square. So he sees what done looks like. This is where we're going. This is what you might see there. And then I'm going to move forward where we're going to drive through Times Square in the car with the windows up, with the doors locked. So he can see what it feels like to be inside of a safe space, still contained, and see the characters in real life. And if he hides his eyes and curls up into a ball, 
then that's probably not going to make much impact. So then we're probably going to need to do it again. So we might need to drive through Times Square with the windows up and the doors locked like three or four times until he can look out the window and confidently see the characters in costume. Now we haven't done any of this. This is my hypothetical stepladder for this situation. So once he's confident driving through Times Square, then we can walk through Times Square. Walking through, standing on the opposite side of the street from the characters in costumes. And once he does that confidently with us, then we can walk on the same side, probably a different day. We can walk on the same side of the road as the people in the costumes. And then finally, we can go up and meet the characters in the costumes, maybe shake their hand and maybe get a picture with them. And that would really be sort of the end of the stepladder, the top of the stepladder, facing that fear head on and seeing that it is safe. It is okay. We can handle this. But we'd probably need to have repeat exposure to the characters in costumes. So just that one visit with the character in costumes, it will help, but Doing regular visits is going to help keep that anxiety at bay and help to build up the confidence that it's okay, we can handle this, we can face characters in costumes, we are safe here. So if that sounds like a lot, it's because it is. (laughs) That's why it's not necessarily something I routinely encourage parents to take on themselves. Although if it's something pretty simple like this, you probably could do it yourself. But if it's something more serious, I would definitely enlist the help of a professional. And yes, it's complicated, which is why as parents, we often choose just to accommodate the anxiety rather than dealing with it. But on the flip side of that, I do think there is this go-between between, okay, you're ready to do this, let's ride at dawn, and let's take 10 steps in 10 different days to reach this goal. As parents, that slow, meticulous stepladder approach is often more than we can handle. But could you break it down and to familiarize, show them what done looks like, help them create a schema? or a set of ideas around what they can expect and help them relate it to similar situations that they've seen in the past. And maybe if it's something simple and straightforward and the anxiety is relatively mild, perhaps you can create a more simplified stepladder. And again, this is not meant to be prescriptive. It's not meant to be comprehensive. These are a couple relatively superficial Examples that come from my very privileged life. But perhaps you learn something. Anxiety isn't something that's meant to be feared. Some level of anxiety is normal and we all experience it. It helps keep us alive. It helps keep us safe. Higher levels of anxiety sometimes need professional intervention. And we shouldn't be afraid to reach out for a helping hand. Because as you can see, it's not easy. And often we're not all that motivated to deal with anxiety in our life. But if there are anxieties that you do need to deal with, it is possible. So don't give up hope. Instead, don't be afraid to reach out for support to get help from a professional. I hope you found this useful. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a good one.